0: We will project it, and I always debate, you know, is it a good thing to project the verses? Uh, I think it is, because for those of us who maybe are new to the scriptures, uh, it's less intimidating just to be able to look up and see, and uh, we want to be a church that's welcoming for those who are early, perhaps, in their journey, Um, so this is, I think, helpful. But for those of you who know the Bible, I want you to be uh, with it in your hands, in your lap, because that's the best way, I think, to get familiar with the scriptures. So if you need a Bible, just raise your hand. My name is Paul Buckley. I'm the lead pastor here. And if you're a guest with us, welcome. We're glad you're here. We pray God's blessing on you. Um, During our worship time, uh, we as a church value corporate worship and really see all that we do on Sunday as part of that. Uh, The preaching of God's Word is an important component. But the singing uh, of God's Word and worship is important. And the sharing from God's people. So we uh, make room for people to share as God leads uh, from Scripture, um, we, we do that under the leadership of our elders. Uh, so it's orderly according to Scripture. But God will often speak to us uh, through sharing and verses. So all that to say, I, I just believed, uh, as I shared from Luke 10 about Martha and Mary, I just have had a strong sense, I still have a strong sense that, that there's many Marthas in the room today. And we're all Marthas at times, so it, it's not that... Uh, you're any different than me, I could tell you lots of stories about Martha-type living on my part. Um, But if you're feeling like a Martha today, uh, if you're just more aware of stress, you're more aware of circumstances, you're more aware of your limitations, you're more aware of your frustrations um, than you are of Jesus, then be encouraged because I believe the Lord wants to speak to you. He wants to call you from being a Martha today to be a Mary, to come and sit at his feet and to enjoy and experience that one thing that is necessary. It's interesting that he says that. Only one thing is necessary. One thing is essential. One thing is central. And really that from that one thing flows everything else. It wasn't that Martha was supposed to stop doing her preparations, but she was supposed to find that one thing that was absolutely essential and central. And that is to be with Jesus, to be in his presence, to depend on him, to wait on him. To see Him in His glory. So as we look at the Word of God today, that is my prayer. We need to see Jesus. And He is presented to us in Scripture. We see Him through the Word of God. We see Him through this living Word, this, this book, this Bible is more than just words, more than black and white. Uh, it, it is the Word of God. It's living and active. And through this, in the power of the Holy Spirit, we see God. We behold His glory. We experience Him And that's why we value the the preaching of God's Word, um, because we we see God in it and we experience God through the very words of God. So we'll be in chapter 6, where we'll be going through verses 53 to 56, uh, and beholding Jesus and continuing in this wonderful book, the Gospel of Mark, where we are learning to be amazed by Jesus. I trust that as we look at his Word today, we will be freshly amazed. We will see his glory and be affected by that so let's pray let's pray and ask God to do all the things that he plans to do to speak to us that we might behold Jesus that we might be like Mary and that's my prayer uh, just as I was getting ready I was just praying Lord i I just don't want to be the focus at all um, i want I want people to go from here thinking about you and being touched by you uh, and God's able to do that um, he wants he wants to To touch your life. He wants you to be as Mary going from this place, saying, you know, I've just been with the Lord. I've been in his presence. So let's ask him to do that today. Lord, we thank you. We thank you that this is your heart, that that passage in Luke is there because it's your heart, that we would come and be at your feet and we would be with you. We would find you as the most essential thing. And I ask you, Lord, now as we come before your word, would you work through your word, would you work Holy Spirit in a way that we would find ourselves at your feet, we would find ourselves beholding you in your glory and listening to you and enjoying you and and being transformed by you in that place. Lord, um, I know, I believe today there are many Marthas in our midst and really all of us at times are Marthas and Lord, I pray and ask you to minister to the Marthas today Transform them. Call them to be Mary's and to be in your presence. Lift up the name of Jesus, Holy Spirit. Glorify the Father. Through this we ask and we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Let's look at uh, Mark chapter 6, verses 53 to 56. Uh, This is part, uh, parcel of this whole story we've been following. Uh, Jesus has been with his disciples. He walked on water right before this and they arrive at the shore and that's where our section picks up. And it says, when they had crossed over, they came to land at Gennesaret and moored to the shore. And when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him and ran about the whole region and began to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he came, villages, cities, or countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. God's word from Mark chapter 6. I want to talk about two things today. Uh, One thing, I want to talk about the touch of Jesus. I want to talk about The wonder of this passage and this idea of the touch of Jesus. And if I have time, I do want to talk about what this means in terms of following Jesus. So those are the two things you have in your notes to follow along. First, the touch of Jesus. This This passage, this section of scripture comes uh, after a long line of miracles, a long line of things that Jesus has been doing. The, The drama in the story just continues to build as we follow it here. Jesus is demonstrating his authority. He's demonstrating his reign over all things through the gospel of Mark. As he's there before the disciples and before the people of Israel, he's demonstrating his reign over all things. And so we see his reign over the forces of nature, over evil, over sickness, over the very word of God. And and up till now, we have seen lots of things happen. He's delivered many from demonic oppression, countless folks Nameless folks, often at times, Mark recounts just that he delivers all those who come to him. There's the man in the synagogue early on that he encounters who he delivers from demonic oppression. The the Gerasene demoniac who who had a legion, thousands of demons in him. He's healed hundreds, maybe thousands at this point throughout the region. He's healed people of leprosy. Leprosy, this debilitating disease of the nerves and skin. He's, he, he's healed a leper. He's healed paralysis, a withered hand. He's healed a woman with a hemorrhaging. He's, he's raised a dead girl. He's demonstrated his lordship over sickness and all these, these ways and death. He's demonstrated his lordship over creation. He's calmed a storm. He's fed 5,000 plus. He's walked on water as God Himself, reigning over creation. He's taught with authority, unlike anything they've seen. He's taught about the kingdom of God. This line of of miracles, line of of amazing things that Jesus does are, are piled one on top of another so that we might look at Jesus and be amazed to see that He's unlike any other. There's no one like Him no one who's ever been like him no one who will ever be like him he is real a real person who lived in history and did these things we we love to read the stories about heroic and epic deeds don't we we love literature we love stories we we love sports heroes we love to follow them and and I, and i think that can be good and it's partly how we're made we we love i mean i love i love to watch football the reason i watch football if you really think about it it's really kind of silly you know they're grown men in tights going up and down a big lawn with this inflated bladder. I mean, it's just really silly when you back up and think about it. But why do we love it? We love it because there there are there are epic heroes really on the field clashing and we get behind our team and 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 we love to root for our team and and we have this vicarious relationship with that team as as if maybe we could be on the field or something and, and so we identify we enjoy that that's partly how we're made and we do it in literature right we love to read the the stories of these epic heroes and uh, the the ones in mythology the fictional ones and and the ones in history the historical heroes we we love that and it's what we're made for we we're made to to follow a champion we're made to to have someone who who we put our trust in and our hopes in and all those fictional heroes and the historical heroes are are only just a shadow of the ultimate hero the epic, ultimate hero who's God Himself in the flesh, Jesus Christ. And so this Gospel of Mark presents this hero to us so that we might put our faith in Him, we might put our trust in Him, we might find our life in Him beyond anything we've experienced in any other hero. He is real. He's the living God in the flesh. We're to be astonished, we're to be amazed, we're to believe in Him, we're to follow Him. We're to find our life in him. This book is given to us for that. And, and, and at times I think, maybe for those of us who have grown up around the Bible and around the stories, we, we take for granted just how amazing this stuff is. We just, oh, well, I heard that story. Yeah, Jesus, I know he does that. But, but this, is, this is incredible what's going on here. This is unprecedented. This is amazing. He is demonstrating that he rules over all things he rules over sickness he rules over sin he rules over creation he rules over evil he is he is the lord of all he's the king and he's come to demonstrate that he is king of all and he comes as savior as well this is amazing stuff and we have to shake ourselves sometimes from our complacency of just familiarity we've we've heard the story so many times and we forget How incredible it is and what it means. So, this little blurb, four verses, or yeah, four verses, just packed full of import. It's packed full of just incredible implications for us. It's packed full of a picture of Jesus just doing what's amazing. And we're meant to be amazed by it. We're meant to come away with our jaws dropping to the floor, saying, this is incredible. Who is this man? Who is this man? And, and what does this stuff mean? And this is just Mark. He's just, he's just got this little paragraph here, but it's just full of incredible implications. And part of what he's doing is, is, Jesus has just been doing all these incredible things, demonstrating his lordship, his reign, that he is God in the flesh. He is the Savior. He's the fulfillment of the Scriptures. And he's been doing all this stuff, and and he's done a lot of stuff around the lake. We've been seeing him do miracles around the Sea of Galilee. And and this is a transition point. He's going to start doing stuff in in the Gentile world. And part of the reason that Mark recounts this section coming up is, is to show that he's not just Lord and Savior for Israel. But he's Lord and Savior for the Gentiles. He's Lord and Savior for all of humanity, and that's where the story's going to go. You'll we'll see as we turn the corner in chapter seven uh, next week and go from there. That starts to go to the Gentiles, and then he starts to march resolutely to Jerusalem to fulfill what it means to be Lord and Savior through his death on the cross, victory over sin and death, and his resurrection. So we have this section here that's a, a transition point and, and in and of itself is, is amazing. It says that he gets out of the boat. You see in uh, verse 54, they, when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him and ran about the whole region and began to bring the sick people on their beds where, uh, wherever they heard he was. They, they see, they recognize Jesus. They have a sense of who he is. They don't quite get it. They don't quite know the whole story yet but they know that he's amazing. And so when they sight him, they see him getting out of the boat, they run around. They run about and the the sense there is that it, is these guys are just they're running crazy because Jesus is back. Jesus has arrived on the shore again and they're going to get the sick and and everywhere where he is, they're bringing sick people to him. They're amazed by him. They know he has the power to heal and they're running about bringing them to Jesus and and then it says in verse Fifty-six. They laid the sick in the marketplace and implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment. As many as touched it were made well. Why does it say that? Why does it talk about this whole idea that people are there in the marketplaces? Everywhere Jesus goes, he's encountering people and they're bringing the sick people, just putting him in the town square type place. And they want to just touch the hem of his garment. And those who touch the hem of his garment are made well. Is it there just because it happened? Well, it did happen, yes, but there's more to it. The picture here, the idea here behind this idea that it's just a touch of his garment is just to show the fact that Jesus walked in incredible power to heal. Incredible power and authority to heal. Really limitless power to heal. And it's just a touch of His garment. Just to touch Him as He goes by is enough to bring healing. That's the idea here. That's the implication here. Actually, later on in Scripture, we're going to see God do the same sort of thing. We, we do see God do the same sort of thing in Peter and Paul, and, and, and their power is derived from Christ, where people are just touching their garments or their clothing and are healed. This is here for us so that we might recognize that Jesus has limitless power To heal and to save. And the word for heal here is the same word as to save. Those who touch him are made well. Just a touch of his garment brings complete healing. Complete physical healing. Complete relief from from physical sickness or affliction or whatever it is. Probably demonic oppression as well. Complete healing. But the word is, is the same word for salvation. It's used elsewhere and translated as salvation—that that people are saved—and and I don't think that it's that the translators got it wrong because the context here is there's physical healing, there's physical salvation going on. Those who touch him experience physical salvation; their bodies are being rescued from the ravages of a fallen world of sickness, perhaps sin as well. They're experiencing physical salvation, but really it it points to and reminds us that he's not just. Limitless in his power to heal physically. But he's limitless in his power to heal in all ways. To save in all ways. Physical, spiritual, cosmic, relational, every way. Jesus comes in limitless power to to save in all these ways. The story of the Scriptures is not that He just comes to heal physically, but He comes to heal entirely, completely. He comes to heal the whole universe of the ravages of sin. He comes to heal and rescue all who come to Him, not only of physical sickness, but spiritual sickness as well. He has limitless power to heal at a touch. And he wasn't satisfied for a few hundred or a few thousand to be healed physically, as important as that is. As great as his compassion is for people. He wasn't satisfied with just a few thousand healed physically. He wasn't satisfied with just a few thousand healed of spiritual oppression. He had more in mind. So this story this passage here is a transition point and we're going to see in a couple chapters he starts to march resolutely to jerusalem because he's not satisfied with just what we read about here he wants more he wants more for his father's glory he wants more for his beloved people he wants more and he knows that that includes not just demonstrating his lordship by healing by the short get but but going to the cross Going to the cross resolutely. Going to the cross to deal with the issue, the problem of sin. The problem of spiritual sickness. He goes resolutely to the cross. He goes to accomplish all that the Father has. He goes to the cross to bring complete salvation to all His people and to the whole universe. Because there's more involved than just temporal physical healing that needs to happen. Salvation involves dealing with spiritual sickness. And the Scriptures teach us that He went to the cross. He went to the cross to deal with the issue of sin, which is the core of our sickness. Not saying that all or most, even physical sickness is a direct result of sin, but it's an indirect result of sin. We live in a a world that's been broken by sin. We were made by God. Humanity was created by God to fellowship with him, to be intimate with him, to trust in him and obey and to and to have dominion over the earth. And yet mankind very quickly turned to self-reliance, turned away from God and and sinned. And that and that broke relationship with God and and as children of Adam and Eve, we are all uh, Subject to this brokenness. We are born separated from God in our sin. And, and left to ourselves, we'll just try to live out life that way. And if we continue, we'll, we'll find that that's our eternal destiny. If we choose to live our lives apart from Him, we'll, we'll live our eternity apart from Him. It's a tragedy. And, and you may never be physically sick. You may die in your sleep peacefully. But you are spiritually sick and that 's more important than than physical sickness that it 's a bigger problem than physical sickness because spiritual sickness leads to spiritual death and separation from him, so Jesus understands all this, and so he comes on the scene as as the hero to rescue us, to come and bring salvation, bring healing, bring it not only physically but spiritually, and, and in order to do that, he must deal with this issue of sin of of this state of humanity in rebellion and our offenses against God that have separated us from him. God is holy and good. There's not a spot, a shade of darkness in him at all. He's pure. He's glorious. We can't approach him in, in his, his light, and his glory. He cannot tolerate sin. He will not. He would be unjust. And so we have this awful predicament of being in our sin and separated from God. And yet, God in His great mercy, He loves us and sent His Son for us to rescue us, to come as this this hero of all heroes, to invade and to demonstrate His Lordship and then to take His righteous holy life and march resolutely to the cross and offer up that life in your place on the cross. That righteous life, that, that, that perfect life as a sacrifice to pay for your sins and to satisfy God's demands for humanity. He does it in His death on the cross. So His death on the cross is our ultimate healing. It's, it's reconciling us to God. It's paying for our sins. It's satisfying righteousness. And when you turn from your sin and place your faith in Jesus Christ, who, who came, who lived, died, and rose again, God counts you forgiven. God counts you righteous. God counts you as a daughter and a son. God will see to your complete healing, physically and spiritually and in every way. And he guarantees that through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is raised from the dead, a historically verifiable fact, a reality that impacts believers, a a first fruits of All believers, the guarantee that we ourselves will raise from the dead uh, and have new bodies with him and experience healing. So so Jesus is marching to Jerusalem in this story as it continues to bring full salvation. This has been predicted early in Scripture. Isaiah 53 talks about this, about what Jesus would do. And, And I think we have this to show overhead. It says, He was despised and rejected by men was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with His wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to His own way. And the Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. Wonderful promise in Isaiah 53 fulfilled through Christ. Why? To bring Healing through His stripes, through His wounds, we are healed. Our sins are paid for. Our healing is guaranteed. Our ultimate healing that will occur at His return. Our spiritual healing that occurs the minute that you turn from your sins and trust in Christ. You are healed and forgiven. Encountered and righteous. And there will be one day soon where you go to be with Him. That you shed this world of sin and this body of sin, and you go to be with Him in in unimaginable bliss. To be apart from the body is to be present with the Lord. So when when the believer dies, uh, it's precious in the sight of the Lord. It's a good thing. Blessed are those who die in the Lord. You get to be with the Lord and be in His presence in eternal bliss. And then it gets better later on, because when Christ returns... He brings us a new creation and new bodies. And we get to live for eternity with Him in His new creation. That's when the healing, the full healing occurs. And and I can't wait for the day. As I get older and older, my body declines more and more. That's more and more precious to me. That there'll be a day when there's no more sore joints, no more sin. There's no more body of flesh hanging on me or hanging on us. But there's new life. And all our inclinations will be to love Him and to live for Him, and to, to live in creation, to, to serve Him, to enjoy Him with His people forever. That's, that's the fullness of the salvation He brings. It only gets better, folks. And it continues forever and ever. That's what Jesus is about. And it only takes a touch of His garment. It only takes a weak hand that barely believes, saying, Jesus, save me, forgive me, touch me. It just takes that. It's simple. A little tiny bit of faith that's just enough to reach out and know that when we just touch the hem of his garment through faith, he has limitless power to save. I have a bunch of scriptures that I'd love to go through and just, just, just tell you about his salvation. <laughs> All right, Ken, I'll do, a, I'll do a little bit. The scriptures are full of what he's able to do. And those promises are for you, Martha, by the way, that you would behold him and what he does for us, what he's already done for us for you, what He will do for you, so that you will center your life around that and not these other things. That's the difference. It's not that those other things go away. There's still trials. There's still challenges. There's still hardships. There's still weakness. There's still sins. But that you would behold Him, the one who has limitless power, and whether it's the first time or the thousandth time, you would reach your hand up and say, Jesus, rescue me. Hebrews 7. You can put these up. Hebrews seven says he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. He's able to save completely to the uttermost. There's no partial salvation. There's no kind of hiccup in on the path. And you know he didn't. He forgot. He saves to the uttermost. He ever lives to make intercession. His blood is fully satisfactory to the Lord. He lives before the Father forever for those who put their faith in him. He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. Do not fear. Do not be afraid. He is able to save to the uttermost. He will not fail you, though you might fail him. He will not fail. Colossians 1 says, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. His blood shed on the cross, works for reconciliation of all things. It works for salvation of all of creation, his people and all of creation. He does this through who he is and what he has done. Ephesians 1, Paul prays. It's it's interesting to to look at Paul, St. Paul, the Apostle Paul's prayers in Scripture. His chief prayers have to do with his people just simply grasping what they have in Christ. Christ has already done it. He's already lived. He's, he's reigning right now. And, and our difficulty, our problem, is just that we don't get it. We forget it. We don't live in light of it. So he says in Ephesians 1, he prays that, quote, "...that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe." So you have in him the fullness of salvation. He has limitless power to save. And it only takes a touch. It only takes a little bit of faith to say, Jesus, I trust you. And that too is a gift from him. He can save the worst of sinners at a touch. He can save to the uttermost all those who would come to him. And trust he can save and will save you should you trust him. I imagine uh, we're all familiar with the Nazi regime, the atrocities, the horror of what went on in the Nazi regime. We're probably familiar with some of the the big names, certainly Hitler himself, um, others as well, who were involved in this. We're all familiar with the The genocide, the torture and death of over 6 million Jews, the systematic genocide and the death of others. You are aware of the evil, racist master plan that was designed to really devastate the world in the name of a godless humanism. You're probably aware that over 60 million people were killed through this awful war. But what you might not know. is the story of the last months and the days and the last minutes of some of the worst masterminds behind the regime as they awaited their sentences at Nuremberg. And you may not know about a, a man, a relatively unknown army chaplain, fluent in German, German-American, named Henry Garrick. He was a chaplain for the men who awaited their sentences at Nuremberg, men like Hermann Goering, Rudolf Hess, von Rippentrop, Field Marshal, William Keitel, Albert Speer, and others. He was the chaplain for these men. Can you imagine being the chaplain for some of the most notorious and dastardly people in history? That was his job. He was a sound gospel man, a Lutheran, Missouri Synod pastor from what I believe. And he himself knew how awful these monsters were. He had been a chaplain in a hospital in England after D-Day. He saw the wounded and dying. He had been at Dachau. He had seen blood on the walls at Dachau. His oldest son, Henry, had been ripped apart in the fighting. His second son, Carlton, had been severely wounded. But he knew something else that was greater than all those horrors. He knew the cross of Christ. He knew the power of Christ. He knew the ability of Christ to raise, to to rescue the the worst sinners, to change the hardest hearts through a simple and small touch of faith. So he ministered to these men faithfully. He declared uncompromisingly the gospel to them as they awaited their sentences. And I could talk about his interactions with all the different men. You can actually read about it. There's biography of this man, Henry Garrick. I encourage you to read it. But I just want to focus on interaction with one man among the many, Von Rippentrop. Joachim, I think is how you say his first name. I'm not sure. Uh, I don't know how to say it in German, but von Rippentrop. And he was the guy, he was the, the chief foreign minister for Hitler. He was the one who was behind the devious diplomacy uh, that went on and kind of working out the war, if you know the history, that they basically lied to, to uh, others and, and, and went ahead with their plan. He was the one behind all that. He was the one, in some ways, who, who set up the pieces to start the war that killed 60 million people plus. He was a, an evil man. He was behind also the, the final solution, as it's called, to, to systematically eradicate European Jews. He was behind this. And Garrick ministered to him, spoke to him about the gospel, believed that God could touch and change even this, this evil, cold heart. And over the course of several months, he, this man, von Rippentrop, went from a cool, arrogant indifference to starting to question the truths of Christ. He became more and more penitent and eager to turn from his evil past. And, and after his final plea, he was at the place, finally, where Garrick believed that he was a genuine believer and had confessed his sins and the horrors of what he had done and repented. So he admitted him to communion, being convinced that God had worked in his soul. And then on October 16, 1946, at 1 in the morning, Rippentrop was called for his sentence. Before he walked to the gallows, he told Garrick he had put all his trust in Christ, this one who has limitless power to save. He climbed the 13 steps. A guard tied his legs. Uh, An officer asked him for his last words, and among his words, he said, I place all my confidence in the Lamb who made atonement for my sins. May God have mercy on my soul. Then he turned to Garrick and said, I'll see you again. Jesus has power, limitless power, to save the hardest heart, to save to the uttermost all those who would reach out and touch him. So put your faith in Jesus. Put your faith in Jesus who saves the likes of von Rippentrop and the likes of us and does Miracles throughout the world, drawing thousands upon thousands, millions upon millions to himself. Rescuing them from sin and sickness and guaranteeing them a final and full salvation. That's what this story in Mark is about. That's why we're given this book. That's why we're given this passage. That's why we see Jesus doing these things and healing it just a touch. That we might read it and be amazed and put our faith in him. And find in him fullness of salvation and have hope for the von Rippentrops around us, perhaps in us. That's what this passage is about. And that's the most important thing I want us to recognize here. God calls us to put our faith in the limitless power of Jesus. I'm going to skip my second point. Um, And ask the band to come up. And uh, maybe we can spend some time just worshiping and remembering this truth, putting our faith in Jesus, who has limitless power to save all those who reach out to touch him and to put their faith in him. Perhaps you are a Martha this morning. He's calling you to come and sit at his feet, to put your faith in him. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for who you are. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for your limitless power to save. We thank you, Lord, for rescuing Joachim von Ribbentrop, not because he deserves anything but because you are merciful and powerful to save, even the worst. You are powerful to save us and to rescue us. You will not leave us. You will not forsake us. It only takes a weakly lifted hand to touch you through faith, to experience your salvation. So I pray, Lord, for each one here today that they would know the power that you have, this limitless power, and they would put their confidence in you That you would lift their eyes up from the things around them that distract them, that trouble them, lift their eyes up from their weakness and even their own sin to look to you, Lord Jesus, to trust you, to be amazed by you, to be transformed by you as they behold your glory.